episode 20, and from my perspective, this project is not yet run to ground. You might observe that neither has it taken off, and you would be right in your observation. But I maintain that the podcast has been a worthwhile endeavor. Of course, I would say that, wouldn't I? The alternative would be to admit that I've been wasting my time. But I have spent a lot of time considering the ramifications of a wide variety of topics important to achieving a true explanation of consciousness. In so doing, I have established at least a starting point for myself. I have clarified where I stand and what I think as of the present moment. The format of this podcast has been, and will at least for now, continue to be a kind of audio essay. I select a topic, discuss it in the context of relevant references, with quotes from experts and thinkers that I respect, and generally, I speculate on how the topic might be accounted for and important to my consciousness framework, the TICL. My hope, as I have discussed before, is that a second phase will eventually occur, one in which I can speak directly with leading philosophers and scientists that share my deep interest in understanding consciousness. Perhaps that will be the future direction of the podcast. If you like these episodes, do me a favor and share them. My paper will soon be published and make its appearance online. I don't expect it to make a quick and decisive impact on the field, but in time, over weeks or months maybe, it will make its way in front of my intellectual heroes. And the leaders in the field of consciousness study will either appreciate my thoughts as a useful contribution, or they will rebuke them. Or perhaps most interesting of all possibilities, they will debate among themselves the quality and value of my ideas. I don't remember when I first became conscious. There is no way that I could know. If the capacity for the formation of long-term memories lags behind the development of the neural correlate of consciousness. We do not have a way of knowing whether infants in the womb are having subjective experiences, but a comprehensive understanding of the identity of consciousness and how its physical substrate produces it should allow us to infer with confidence at what point in neural development a human child gains that capacity. On today's episode, I'm going to discuss the relationship between memory and consciousness. A patient known as H.M. became one of the most famous in the history of neuroscience after he underwent the removal of both hippocampi and adjacent areas of the medial temporal lobe in order to control his epilepsy. The Nobel laureate Eric Kandel wrote about his case in The Disordered Mind. Kandel wrote, quote, The operation essentially cured H.M.'s epilepsy, but it left him with severe memory disturbance. Although he remained the polite, gentle, calm, and pleasant young man he had always been, he had lost the ability to form any new long-term memories. He remembered people he had known for many years before the operation, but he did not remember anyone he had met since the operation. He couldn't even learn how to go to the bathroom in the hospital. Scoville invited Milner to study H.M., and she ended up working with him for 20 years, yet each time she walked into the room, it was as if H.M. were meeting her for the first time. Unquote. It was thought that H.M.'s amnesia applied to all areas of knowledge until Brenda Milner discovered that he could learn motor tasks. She had H.M. learn a drawing task in which people make a lot of errors when they first do it, but they get better as they practice. Within a few days, H.M. improved substantially, but he had no memory of ever having practiced the task before. Kandel relays work by Larry Squire that showed that patients like H.M. can learn a variety of non-motor tasks, too, and they can form habits. Kandel writes, quote, Squire came to realize that there are two major memory systems in the brain, 
One is explicit or declarative memory, which allows us to consciously remember people, places, and objects. This is what we mean when we refer to memory in everyday language. It reflects our conscious ability to remember facts and events. Explicit memory relies on the medial region of the temporal lobe, which explains why HM could no longer remember new facts or people or even the events of the passing days. The second type of memory, the memory that Squire identified, is implicit or non-declarative memory, which our brain uses for motor and perceptual skills that we do automatically." Unquote. These two types of memory, explicit and implicit, both refer to long-term memory, mediated accordingly by long-term changes in the brain. HM specifically lost the capacity to form explicit long-term memory. In a book cha chapter titled The Hippocampus Memory and Consciousness, Bradley Possel discusses what it is like to be amnesic. He writes, quote, Within the tradition of phenomenology, the stream of consciousness is held to provide coherence and continuity to conscious experience. As summarized in Thompson and Zahavi 2007, phenomenological analyses point to the width or depth of the living present of consciousness. Our experience of the temporally enduring objects and events, as well as our experience of change and succession, would be impossible were we conscious only of that which is given in a punctual now and were our stream of consciousness composed of a series of isolated now points, like a string of pearls. According to Husserl, 1991, the basic unit of temporality is not a knife-edge present, but a duration block." Unquote. In this passage, Postle is alluding to the fact that we do not exist at the very present, zero time frame moment. Rather, there is a wider kind of present moment of conscious experience composed of what is now, what is coming next, and what has just been. There is a context around the exact present that makes the moment sensible. Postle writes a little further in the article, quote, A second concept from philosophy that is germane to our pursuit is that of fringe consciousness, summarized by Sager 2007 as, The background of awareness that sets the context for experience. An example is our sense of orientation or rightness in a familiar environment. Fringe consciousness situates a person preventing the feeling that one has simply popped into the world at that moment." Unquote. Postle goes on to describe an, an am, amnesic patient by the name of Clive Waring, whose amnesia was the result of uh, herpes encephalitis, which produces severe hippocampal damage. He relays a transcript of a conversation caught on video between Waring and his wife, Deborah. Waring's wife asks, Do you know how we got here? He says, No. She asks, You don't remember sitting down? He says, No. She says, I reckon we've been here about ten minutes at least, Waring replies. Well, I've no knowledge of it. My eyes only started working now. His wife asks, and you feel absolutely normal? He says, not absolutely normal. No, I'm completely confused. Confused, she says. He responds, yes, if you've never eaten anything, never touched anything, never smelled something, what right have you to assume you're alive? She says, hmm, but you are. And Waring says, apparently, yes, but I'd like to know what the hell's been going on. I found this passage haunting, so I looked up some video of Clive Waring. On a BBC documentary, he said this, I've never seen a human being before, never had a dream or a thought. Brain has been totally inactive, day and night the same, no thoughts at all. In his book chapter, Bradley Postle mentions Waring's journal. He writes, quote, the journal he keeps is filled with multiple entries that all contain variants of the same message. For example, directly under the entry, 
10.49 a.m. I am totally awake, first time, which appears on the first line of a page, is the second entry, 11.05 a.m. I am perfectly awake, first time. With Clive Waring, we have a really severe case of consciousness in the absence of long-term explicit memory. Waring seems to live a life, if you could even call it that, which only exists in the here and now, with nothing but the present moment of conscious contents and short-term or immediate memory. Psychologists talking of short-term memory usually use the more specific term, working memory, and it appears to occur in the cerebral cortex, especially the prefrontal cortex. As far as consciousness goes, working memory is of greater interest to me than long-term forms of memory. Working memory is quite limited, but is essential to function effectively in the world. A typical person can recall between 7 and 10 spoken digits. Different sensory modalities seem to have their own parallel working memory capacities. In his book, The Quest for Consciousness, Christoph Koch writes, quote, Consider patients with damaged working memory. Some can't even keep two numbers in mind, even though they have normal long-term memory. Many speak haltingly, hesitantly, or agrammatically, and have difficulty finding appropriate words, but they are all conscious. The British neuropsychologist Jane Riddick and Glyn Humphreys tested three such patients, all showed significantly reduced memory spans for spoken letters and words, for visually presented lists of words, and for non-linguistic visual material. They had trouble correctly copying line drawings and in performing performing simple calculations requiring two or more mental operations. They committed many errors when judging whether two lines shared the same orientation or length, or whether two circles were the same size. All three, however, could clearly see and name objects and had normal visual sensations. This would suggest that working memory is not a prerequisite for consciousness." Unquote. There is a final, even briefer form of memory that Koch describes in his book. This is fleeting or iconic memory. Koch writes, quote, An even briefer form of memory is probably essential to conscious experience. You can see the visual form in the reddish trail made by a glowing cigarette in the dark. If you're quick enough, you can draw a full circle in the air before the initial part of the trajectory fades. Such observations suggest decay times of a fraction of a second, unquote. Incidentally, if you have ever experienced psychedelic drugs, you will be aware that such tracers are capable of substantially longer durations than this. It's interesting to consider that these drugs might extend this form of memory across modalities. Koch describes a classic experiment that was done by George Sperling in 1960. When six visible letters were flashed briefly for subjects to report their identity and location, the average recall was less than five correct. Sperling extended how long the letters were shown by another half second, and there was still no improvement. Koch writes, quote, To get at this discrepancy, Sperling switched to displays consisting of three rows of four letters, and ingeniously combined this with a high, a medium, or a low-pitched tone after the image disappeared. The sound indicated whether the upper, middle, or lower line had to be read out. Now, subjects reported three of the four characters in the indicated row. Because they could not foretell which row they were supposed to report, subjects had to store an average of three times three letters, more than the 4.3 letters of the original design. Sperling also varied the time between the offset of the display and the cue. If the tone was delayed by one second, performance fell to the level observed in the non-cued design. This experiment suggested that letters are read off from a high-capacity 
rapidly decaying visual form of storage called iconic memory, unquote. I think Sperling's experiment was brilliant. I suspect that an analog to iconic memory occurs in non-visual sensory modalities too. Conscious vision is an interesting case, perhaps especially so since humans are such visual creatures. Consider the way a visual scene of your environment appears to you. It seems as if you are you have around you a rich and high-resolution surround, but in fact, human vision relies upon a focused concentration of cones in a small area of the retina called the fovea. Our eyes constantly dart from one location to another, foveating a particular location in space. This does indeed provide a rich and high-resolution image corresponding to that location. But why doesn't vision consist of a small, highly detailed circle surrounded by a blur of low-resolution fading toward the periphery? I think iconic memory might hold in consciousness lots of detail across many foveations, giving us the illusion that we have a massive field of detailed vision. Koch suggests that fleeting or iconic memory might be a crucial aspect of consciousness. Perhaps he is right. It seems apparent that some kind of minimal memory must occur for consciousness as we know it. I am not convinced that consciousness could not occur without it, though. Rather, I sus suspect that human consciousness and that which occurs in animals would make no difference in the world without some kind of memory. We saw with Clive Waring that consciousness can occur in the absence of long-term memory. What would it be like? Let's ask him. He might say, I'm totally awake, first time. So long as we accept that Waring is fully conscious in the moment of making that statement, we can rule out the necessity for long-term memory in having a conscious experience. Presumably, the patients that Koch described in which short-term memory is highly defective were conscious as well. So let's focus here on the minimal kind of memory, the fleeting memory, and what Possel called fringe consciousness. Human consciousness feels like a persistent present experience, wherein the contents are ever-changing. This carries with it a sense of the passage of time. If a conscious being existed at the very knife-edge present, with no sustaining of contents beyond their immediate presentation, we could not be aware of the passage of time. We could not see something moving or changing, but only what is. This would not be particularly adaptive, and I have argued that consciousness must serve a function. It would seem that the present moment of consciousness is rather a window of time, spread across as much as a second. This is reminiscent of the fovea in the retina. The fastest component of stimulus-driven consciousness might be of high resolution and clarity, with the recent past fading away toward the temporal periphery. According to the TICL, each content in consciousness requires a subsystem, which is defined as a group of neuronal elements which exhibit a higher level of temporally integrated causality than that of the greater system. I propose that a neural mechanism must exist for sustaining subsystems beyond the incoming stimuli which initiate them. So if we are presented with Sperling's three rows of four letters, after those letters disappear, for some amount of time, the subsystems which produce the presentation of those letters in conscious vision remain active. I would expect these subsystems to begin diminishing in temporally integrated causality over the course of a second or less before disappearing into the noise of the system. Koch writes, quote, The information in iconic storage is volatile, so it quickly fades away unless strengthened. Only some of its content, together with its gist, is made conscious. What data is transferred into consciousness as limelight depends on biases exerted by bottom-up saliency and top-down focal attention. 
Because some letters are more noticeable than others, or because you've been told to pay attention to some object, attention reinforces the relevant neural coalitions. By prolonging their size and lifetime in the upper stages of the visual hierarchy, these coalitions activate neurons in the prefrontal cortex and elsewhere, which feed back to earlier areas so that they can establish stable firing patterns that make up the NCC and that can be stored in working memory." Unquote. I agree with Koch. When he refers to neural coalitions, I think these generally accord with my concept of subsystems. Feedback mechanisms serve to maintain the subsystems beyond the normal momentum that they might already possess from the integration of the subsystems elements. When we fall asleep, what happens is our consciousness unravels. Perhaps the neural networks responsible for working memory and attentional processes become disabled first. We're then left for a brief time with something like the fleeting memory of a thought or impression, the iconic memory of an apparition. It is as if the window of consciousness onto time begins slowly to close until it altogether shuts into oblivion. I rarely remember my dreams upon awakening. I immediately boot up like a computer and jack into my identity, my memories, my personality. Clive Waring doesn't have that capability. His processor turns on, but there are no such programs detected, no hard drive, just the BIOS, so he's forever in a reboot cycle. Studies in which researchers awaken subjects, especially during REM sleep, suggest that we all dream quite regularly when we sleep. As I think back over recent days, the memory of my experiences occurs only for the waking hours. How rich in conscious experiences are those periods in between? Presumably, a substantial amount of my conscious experience occurs in dreaming. If that is the case, then what is missing from those experiences is long-term memory. Doesn't that imply that I live a fraction of my life as an amnesiac? HM could hold a conversation for up to a few minutes. Maybe dreaming is like that, too. To the extent that I remember fractions of my dreams, it seems that I am generally in a state of confusion and anxiety. One scene wanders into another, and I always seem to be forgetting something. What the hell am I experiencing in all the dreams which I fail to recall? If a tree falls in my dream, and I have already forgotten it, has it made a sound? Was I conscious? Did I exist? I must have, but all access is lost. I know that I exist now, but I cannot know, not for sure, that I existed in my sleep. And if the loss of memory for my sleeping experiences lends uncertainty to whether I was conscious then, then I cannot be confident that it was I who was conscious yesterday. I awoke this morning and booted up Jesse's memories, Jesse's identity, Jesse's personality. As a mind, am I new to this world, or am I the continuation of Jesse's consciousness that first came into being when it was enabled by neural development? Clive Waring is the amnesiac. But what if his condition reveals the true story? What if, what if it is you and I who suffer an illusion? I am totally awake. Maybe this is the first time.